Well, wisdom is a skill for living. Wisdom is skill for living, and it's skill for living well in the sight of God and man. Now, for those of you who know already, you'll be saying, I thought this sermon was about managing your money. Well, it is, but hear me out. So you can have a lot of money, but unless you have wisdom, your money isn't going to last very long, and it is not going to lead to a good end. I don't know about you, but some of you, when you arrived and maybe you realized this morning that we're talking about money, you may thought, why is it every time we turn up at church we talk about money? And you say, I don't really like talking about money. Well, I do, so we're going to talk about money. And we're going to see how do we manage our money in a godly way. How do we do that? Because that's an important part of our life. The book of Proverbs, as you already know, if you've been walking through this series with us during the summertime, it's filled with amazing godly wisdom. Amazing godly wisdom. And this godly wisdom helps us grow in wisdom. And today, the goal is that we would see our money our portfolio, if you like, whatever that looks like for you, our possessions, large or small, much or little, we want to see all of that from God's perspective, don't we? And we'll do this by asking the question which is on the screen, how do I manage, how do we manage our money? Well, if you have been reading through, and I encourage you way back at the beginning when we started this a few weeks ago, if you've been reading through the book of Proverbs, which is 31 chapters, takes you just about a month to read through if you read a chapter a day, you will already know that actually finance and money is a major theme or a mega theme, if you like, in the book of Proverbs. And so let's dive straight into chapter 22 and verse 7. We are going to be moving around the book today as this book is made up. We're going to be reading around, but at the beginning we're going to be turning to chapter 22 and verse 7. It says this, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Is this true today? Yes, absolutely. The golden rule is that those who have the gold make the rules. That's the thing, isn't it? We love the idea of freedom in our country, as do every country, every person. Yet in many ways today, we are in financial slavery. Credit cards, car finance. And I know you're, I'm, I'm saying that, but I'm pointing to the guy who used to sell cars, so I appreciate that. But car finance, university debt, business loans, mortgages, list goes on. But just look again at the verse, of, verse 7 of chapter 22 of Proverbs. Just look again there. It tells us clearly that the borrower is a slave to the lender. And do you know what this looks like? Well, the lender here that we read of, <clears throat> the person who gives the money, well, they're the master. They're the master. And that master then controls the slave, the borrower, if you like. And that slave doesn't get to make decisions in life. Oh no, the master, the person who lends the money now is calling the shots. And this is what financial debt looks like, doesn't it? This is what it does. Let me give you some stats here that I I found this week. In June 2021, which is only a couple of months ago, the average interest rate on a credit card in the UK was 21.49%. 21.49%. But that's not the shocking thing. They found out that 54% of those cards were bearing interest charges. That's a lot. 
And do you know what these kind of money habits do to us? They enslave us. That's what Proverbs says. They enslave us. It could be that you are in this position and you can't be with your family because you're saying, I have to work. I have to work. I have to do work and work and work so that we can pay the bills. Maybe you are there and you're saying, well, I can't capitalize on an opportunity in my life because we are overextended financially in our family. Or I would like to take a day off. Haven't we heard that before? Or I'd like to be with my kids or I'd like to be with my wife, but I can't be because I have to work. Because I'm going to have to work seven days a week because that's the only way we're only going to be able to sustain our expenditures. That's not a healthy lifestyle. And suddenly when we get into that rut, into that place in our life financially, all of our priorities, all of our values, all of our biblical convictions go out the window. Now, tying into last week's sermon, which we talked about how do we, how do we train kids? How do we bring up kids we enjoy? How do we raise them up in the way of the Lord? Well, let me tell you this. Let's train our kids how to manage their money. Let's train them how not to get into debt. Let's teach them the things that we learned or we are learning and share with them our mistakes so that they don't go and do the same ones and become enslaved to lenders. That would be a wise thing to do. Isn't that what we are reading here in the verses in Proverbs? A father talking to a son and teaching him and saying, Son, look, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to live. This is not the way to manage your money. This, there is a better and more godly way. Now, I realize that each of us this morning view finances differently. If we were to have a discussion, everyone would see financial, finances or money differently. I appreciate that. And some of you even are married to your wife or your husband and you don't agree, even between yourselves, how to manage your money. We do that in the wedding or marriage classes, which I was doing even this week. We talk about approaches to finances in marriage. Maybe you don't agree with your wife or your husband. We all come from different backgrounds. We are all in different financial circumstances. But what I want us to get this morning is a biblical perspective a God perspective, and, a, and Proverbs really helps us to do that. So let's look at three perspectives of possessions. Straight out of the book of Proverbs, let's see three perspectives of possessions. And I want to use three S's. And I think, the, I think they're on the screen. I've put them up there so you can be ahead of me, because we're going to move fairly quickly through Proverbs. But turn them up, please. Your Bible's in front of you, I hope, and you're just going to flick through the pages. And I want you to look down and read God's Word. Proverbs 1:19. Proverbs 1.19 Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Well, this person, the first S, is selfish. This person is selfish. They think what's mine is mine. You say, oh, that sounds pretty logical. But the writer of this verse shows us the dangers of this perspective, the dangers of this greedy attitude in that it robs those people of life. Did you not see it? It takes away the life of its possessors. That's what we just read in part B of this proverb. And these selfish people can only think about getting more money. That's what they can think about. Oh, it's, it's not that they want more money so that they can go and help or give it away. No, that's not their goal. That's not what they're thinking. That's not what Proverbs is saying here. 
No, they don't get the money so they can help their family out. No, that's not in their mind. They, they could help their parents out, but they don't. They could give to the ministry of the church, but they don't. They are selfish, inward thinkers, and they think just about how do we get more and more and more. The second one is in Proverbs 30 and 15. Proverbs 30 and 15. This is pretty striking, this proverb. It's very visual and very strong, if you like, in its wording. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. This person steals. This is about stealing. People are like that. They think what's yours is mine. Ever met anyone like that? And what's this verse saying? Well, once you figure out what a leech does, then times that by three and you get a good idea. A leech, when it's attached, never stops sucking the lifeblood from the host. It's an analogy, isn't it, of the people who think that they're, they're or you're obligated to them. And that what you have is theirs, that they always think you owe them, that you need to pay them, and they are relentlessly sucking the resources from you. You may have met this type of person in life. I was thinking about how do we, how do we try and place this in our world and in our life today? Well, think of a person whose life is a mess. We could call it deferred maintenance. They haven't maintained anything in their life, not their home, not their family, not their finances. And then a bombshell hits their life. The bottom falls out of their life. And they stand there bewildered, not knowing what has gone on. And do you know what they do? They call on other people. They wait on everyone else to come in and to pick up the pieces and to help them to get back on track. And the problem is, unless they get wisdom, this is just a recurring event in their life. The last S is in Proverbs 21 and 26. The last S is in Proverbs 21 and 26. All day long he craves and craves. But the righteous, you could put the godly person, gives and does not hold back. And so this person is the steward. This person is the steward. They think what's mine is his, is the Lord's. That's what they think. The steward recognizes that God is the owner of everything they have, and they see themselves as the manager of the possessions. He's the owner because he gave it to me. Everything I have is because of him. And so I'm just the manager. And I'm going to manage this well. Hence the title of the sermon. How to manage our money. Well, see the steward sees their role as overseeing. Overseeing and managing God's portfolio. And they are always desiring to have a good return on investment. Any good businessman will tell you you want to invest your money where you're going to get a good return. And that's what they're interested in. But not only that, but the steward here, 
If you look at the verse again, it says this. He gives and does not hold back. Isn't that wonderful? question for most of us then is, how do we reach this point in our finances or with our finances where we love to give and give without holding back? How do we get there? Well, it's quite simple, actually. Those who see their possessions as their own will always, always struggle to give them away. When you say, no, this is mine, and I earned this, all that I have, that's mine, you will struggle always to give it away. But you see, when you turn that upside down, you say, okay, everything I have comes from the Lord. Oh, well, now it is much easier to give that away because it's God's. And so this changes also how we decide what we do with our money, doesn't it? And actually, instead of telling God what you're going to do, have you ever done that? Lord, I'm going to do this with my money, with my finances. Actually, instead, this person here, the steward, turns around and says, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? See the difference? And now I realize in the room today there are those who are less well-off and those who are more well-off, if that's the right terminology. And I'm not interested about that, to be perfectly honest. I'm not interested about that. That's not the point today. What I want is that we would be godly in how we deal with our wealth and not to be ungodly. That's my desire as the pastor here for you and for me. That we would be godly in our attitude and godly in our approach and godly in our generosity with our money. Okay, that's the point. And Proverbs speaks of four different kinds of people. He speak, it speaks of two rich people and two poor people. Or if you like, two godly people and two ungodly people. I'll put them on the screen for you to, to see. Here they are, here. And let's turn them up. Proverbs 10 and 4. The first one is an ungodly, poor person. Ungodly, poor person. A slack or lazy, if you like, hand causes poverty. Now, last Sunday night, if you were here, we said that work is a godly thing. God worked, didn't he? Still works today. And so working is a godly thing. Well, then if you read this verse and you see about this slack person or lazy person, you have to say that they are ungodly. And obviously in their ungodliness and in their laziness, they end up being poor. It's sort of a natural goal. You know, if someone is crying out for money and you ask them, well, have you got a job? And they say no. And you say, well, what do you expect? You know, you work hard and then you reap the benefit of that. Okay, it's pretty logical. The godly poor person then in Proverbs 28 and 6, just turn over to 28 and 6. Well, this is a different sort of approach. A godly and poor person Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Well, this person is godly. You see, he walks in integrity, but he's broke. He's, he's, he's godly, but he hasn't got any money. But better that than an ungodly rich person. Okay? Better that, that you're godly and poor than to be ungodly and rich and we'll come to him 
next. Ungodly rich, Proverbs 15, 27. Let's see what he's like. 15 and 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Remember the greedy person from last Sunday night? They don't love people, they love money. They love profit over people. They don't use money to love people, they use people to make money. And they are greed-motivated, not God-motivated. That's what an ungodly rich person is like. And yet finally, in Proverbs 10 and 22, we see the godly rich. The godly rich. 10 and 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it or no trouble to it. Now for some, not all, they live godly lives and God in his perfect sovereignty and in his will, he blesses them in many ways. And he shows them generosity in ways that others don't receive. And we probably pick up a circumstance like that in our life. But we see there's a godly person. Maybe you're godly too, but you haven't got the riches that they have. And somehow God has blessed them over you. But that's not a perspective that we should see. We should see that God is perfect in all of his sovereignty. He knows what's best and he knows how we will handle it. And so he blesses some over others. And so you can be godly and you can be rich or well off. Now, which one of these was Jesus? What would you say? Well, of course, not the ungodly ones. Which of the two Godly poor or godly rich was Jesus? Both. He was in heaven, streets lined with gold, heavenly angels all around him, sitting on a throne. All of that speaks of riches, right? Well, then he came to earth. He was born in a manger to a young, poor couple, parents who probably had very little, if anything, And then the little money that Jesus had when he was growing up, when he was getting older, when he had his disciples with him, was being stolen by an ungodly, greedy person named Judas. However, when we see Jesus one day, whether we are, whether our life ends and we go to see and be with Christ, or whether he comes back to take us to be with him, Will he be in riches or will he be in poverty? Well, riches, of course. He will be in riches. We will see him in all of his glory. And he will then lavishly share those riches to all who know him and love him. What's my point? Is it to become like the godly rich? No, that's not the point. It's to be godly whether you're rich or whether you're poor. You can be like Jesus and be poor, and you can be like Jesus and you can be rich. The question is not, are you becoming poor either? But are we becoming like Jesus? That's the question. If he's given you much, that may be you today, be a good steward. If he's given you little, be a good steward. However, to be a good steward, we need a plan, don't we? Some of you love planning. You love it. 
It's your thing. You love to know where you're going and what's coming and, and you love to put it all in place. Some of you don't, and that's okay. Some of you have that Excel document on your desktop with an income column and an expenditures column and you've got it all worked out. Great. Keep doing that. That's a good and godly thing to do. As I say, some of you don't do that and some of you probably either have little idea of how to plan financially, or you hate talking about money, as I said. There are some of us here, hate talking about money, and so you have nothing to do with it. Well, whatever it might be, we do need a plan, and Proverbs gives us guidance in how to plan. Proverbs 21 and 5, let's go there. Proverbs 21 and 5. How do we plan financially? Proverbs 21 and 5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. What's he saying? He's saying that there is no shortcut to getting rich. Sorry to tell you that, those who are striving hard in your life to be rich. There is no shortcut. Forget the get rich quick schemes that are all over the place and realize that what is required to reach profit, if that's your desire, is diligence. Did you see it? The plans of the diligent will lead to profit. In other words, we need plans and we need to be diligent to work our plans. The trouble we face today, and let me tell you this, we are teaching our kids this as well, I believe, is that gratification is immediate. Ever thought that? Ever realized that you're actually teaching your kids that? That we want something and we will do all that we can. We will find a way to get it. The money you save, you now spend on this thing that you want. Or you even take out a credit card to pay for it. And so what you're doing is actually creating a culture within your family where gratification is immediate. Or on the other side, we're training ourselves and our families and our kids that delayed gratification is bad, is a bad thing. And that a financial plan, that saving and patience and diligence is bad. That's what you're teaching yourself and your kids. So let me, tell you, let me say this. Make a plan, be patient, and be diligent. Proverbs 15, 22. Let's go there. Proverbs 15, 22 talks about a plan. Plans fail for the lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. When we're putting together a plan, let me say this, seek out advisors. People you trust, people you love, people who know and are wise in their field, particularly here in finances. Maybe you thought financial advisor was a relatively new term, maybe over the last number of centuries. No, it's not. Here it is here. With many advisors, apply that to finances, and we have financial advisors here in the Bible. People who are good with money. People who are skilled in that area. And I would say go to them with your plans. Some of you have big plans probably for your business, for your life, for your family. I would say go to them and, and show them and ask them, is this a good idea? And maybe you say, well, I don't want anyone peering into my own business. Humble yourself. Be careful. Humble yourself. Get someone you trust. Get someone who is wise, 
who will guide you into using your finances in a godly and diligent way for the glory of God. Proverbs 16 and 3. Proverbs 16 and 3, just turn over the page. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. You know this proverb. Let's apply it to the subject we're dealing with today. And let me say this. This is the wisest and most important part of your planning. Yes, I've got it at number three, but you could put it up at top, at number one. This is the wisest and most important part of your planning. Bring your plans before the Lord. Ask God, is this, this plan I have, this idea I have, in accordance with your word? Is it in accordance with your principles that we find in it? To your values, Lord, and to your will, most importantly. Do these things line up? Say, Lord, I have a plan. I've sought wise counsel. I've sought to work it diligently. And so I'm asking now if it pleases you, Lord, and that you, if it does, would bless this. That's a godly thing to do. And there are so many areas in Proverbs that we could continue to look at this morning. We haven't got time. We could look at how do we spend the money? What is biblical giving? We touched on that back in 2019. Proverbs teaches us about paying taxes. I'm sure you would love to hear that. How we save our money or how we invest it in a godly way. But as I say, there's no time to do that. But I want to finish today by giving us four reasons to give to God generously. Four reasons to give to God generously. Why should I worship God with my wealth rather than worship my wealth as my God? That's the question, okay? Because some of you are there. Some of you are worshiping your wealth as your God rather than worshiping God with your wealth, okay? And there's a massive spectrum of difference. First thing is this. God takes our worst and gives us his best. You know the verse. John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We give because God has given us his best in his son. But not only that, but God took our worst, our sin, and in giving his son, he also gave us, those who love him and trust him, he gave us his son's righteousness. He gave us his son's perfection. And so he took our worst, our sin, and our wickedness, and he put it on his son, and then he took his son's perfection and righteousness, and he imputed that to us. How amazing is that? And so know this, that loving is giving, and giving is loving, isn't it? And God set that example. And so if you're not giving, then you're not loving. See, love is not just how we feel. I hope that's not a new shock to you this morning. Loving isn't just how we feel, but it's what we do. It's how we act. And God demonstrated his love for us in what way? By giving us his son. That was the act. 
And this gift he gave us was not just good. It was perfect. It was salvific. It had it came and Christ gave us and made a way for our salvation. It was full of grace and forgiveness. And in giving this gift, God said, remember Proverbs 1 and 7? He said, this is a new beginning for you. Fear of the Lord is the beginning. And it's a new beginning with Jesus and it's an eternal gift. If you like, it's an eternal return on investment, isn't it? Now you might not be a Christian today and you're wondering, okay, I hear you, but what then does God want from me? What does he want from me? Well, let me say this. If he's calling you today, if he's been calling you in your life in days and weeks gone past and you can't shake that, let me tell you what he wants. He wants 100% of your sin. You say, what? Yeah. He wants to take your sin and he wants to wipe it clean. He wants to, he wants to take that sin and he wants to give you Christ's perfection. He's not interested primarily in your money. No, he wants your worst so that he can give you his best. He wants your sin so he can wash you clean and then he can credit in your account Jesus' righteousness. How amazing is that? Well, secondly, where we give, remember this is the question, uh, four reasons, or this is the title, four reasons to give to God generously. And the second one is this, where we give our money, our heart will be. That's a bit of a strange phrase when you think about it. But in Matthew 6 and 21, it says, For there, or for where, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know that verse, right? So where your treasure is, that's where you're going to find your heart. Now, I know we rightly read and apply this verse in context of loving Christ first and that he is our greatest treasure and therefore our heart is there also. And that is right and that is one application. But let me just see it a slightly different way this morning. And I don't think this is unfaithful to this text. Would it be fair to say in this context of finance and money that where and on what we spend our money, we also find our hearts there too? Is that fair? Let me say it this way. We care about the things we pay for. <laughs> you really do. Unless you're really, really odd. And maybe there are some of you here like that. But if you're going to spend your money, oh, you're all in where you're spending your money, aren't you? You're all in. And so our hearts follow our financial decisions. And so spending motivates and incentivizes us to also invest our hearts, to also invest our time, and to also invest our efforts. So be very careful. Be very careful where you put your money. For example, if we want our hearts to be towards our spouse, then we will be generous towards our spouse. If we want our hearts to be towards our kids, then we will be generous towards our kids. If we want our hearts to be generous towards the work and mission of the church, we will be generous towards the work and the mission of the church. 
You, you get my point. Thirdly, giving is an internal, eternal investment. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Let me read it to you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I don't know if you've noticed, but new things on this earth, brand new things, new houses, new cars, whatever it may be, don't stay new very long. Because this earth is always in a degrading state since the curse. A new car becomes worn out very quickly. A new house needs constant maintenance. I said last Sunday night, work is never done because of the curse. It doesn't matter what you invest your money into on this earth, it will be destroyed by moths and vermin and rust. Or it will be stolen, as we read in Matthew 6 and 19 and 20, by thieves. But there is a place where this does not happen. A place where our investments are absolutely secure and it's called heaven. God wants us to invest our whole life in this place. Why? Firstly, because we love God and want to invest our life in his work and his mission with that eternal place in mind. But secondly, because there we will reap, or as the Bible calls it, we will get our rewards and our inheritance there. So let's be careful what we do and realize that giving has the potential for eternal investment. And finally, and very briefly, giving is a blessing. Acts 20, 35 says this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Does this world think that this is true? That it's more blessed to give than to receive? No. That is not the world that we live in. The world seems to be out for everything and anything it can get without much thought of anybody else. And on the other hand, there are false teachers out there, not even far from this church here, which, who will tell you that if you give, then you will receive God's blessing. That your giving will definitely result in God blessing you. That's not true. This is a false teaching that trains us to think that if we give, that we have to get something in response from God. That's not true. See, we don't give to get a blessing. Or I hope we don't. I hope we're not that person who gives and is waiting then for something in return. Our hearts can deceive us in that way. But we should be a people who give because giving is the blessing. See the difference? Give to receive a blessing or give because giving is the blessing. And God sets the greatest example of this, right? He is the most cheerful, the most generous the most blessed giver. And so let's follow his example. Let's manage his money well, because he's the owner of it. Let's be generous with what we have, our money, our time, our skills, our presence even. Let's be generous with it. And let me say this, when you move to become like God in, the, in this aspect of your life, you will not only become a giver, but you will become a forgiver as well. Trust me. You won't go, when you, when you reach this point in your life, and maybe you've been there, you won't go looking for repayments necessarily all the time. You will give with generosity, and you won't be looking that back necessarily. 
that you will be loving and generous and forgiving in so many areas of life if you were just to come and to be generous and to manage what you have well in a godly way. And if we see ourselves as receivers of God's blessing, which I hope is you this morning as you sit here, you're saying, Lord, I can see this morning afresh just how much you've given to me, and I thank you all for that. And I'm going to be a good manager of that. If we see ourselves as receivers of God's blessing, then we will see him as the giver and forgiver. And then we will be playing our parts. We will be the means of showing generosity and forgiveness to others. See, that's why he's given us what we've got. Because giving is how we love people. We don't love people so that we get. But we use what we have to bless and love others. And we do that for God's glory and for his wonderful gospel. And let me tell you how that feels. In Acts 20 and 35, which I read just a moment ago, it says this, it is more blessed. It's more blessed. What that means is this attitude towards our money and our finances is a joyful thing. You want to find joy? In this area of your life, then live out what the scriptures say and do this and see that more more giving is more blessed than receiving. And so today, I know time's up, well over. But let's give generously. Let's be a people of generosity. Let's give joyfully with that and sacrificially and secretly too. But let's do that with all that he has already given us, that he may be given the glory, that he may be pleased with how we manage our money, and that we will see him as the one who gave it to us originally, and that we are here just to manage it. And I believe that if we do that, then we will be blessed, as we've read here. Not necessarily by something he's given back, but in joy and in thanksgiving because he has given to us in abundant measure. Let's pray for help as we do that. Father, help us to see how you have set the framework for us managing our money. Thank you that you have been so generous to us wherever we find ourselves today that all we have is from you. And now we, may we be those who commit everything back to you and that we would seek your approval and guidance and will as we manage our finance as well. So help us to do that, that you will be pleased in our actions and that through our generosity that we would see others, those outside the kingdom coming in and seeing your love for them. And so, Lord, may we be a people like this. And thank you that you have given us the greatest gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. A measure that we will never be able to meet. And yet, Lord, we strive. And Lord, we give you thanks. And we do that now as we eat and drink even, giving thanks for all that you've given us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you and help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.